Yeah, he planned it in advance. He did, absolutely. So our scripture is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. There it's written. Since therefore Christ suffered in the same flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. If you would please join me in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, actually, I'm going to start in the Gospels, right? So, we understand that there's four different... When you turn to the New Testament, if you're unfamiliar, there's four Gospel writers. And the Gospel accounts are the, are the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ um, from birth, for some of them, through his death and resurrection. And there's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, and there's John. And when you read them and you compare them, you understand that, hey... These are written differently. Not all of them have, um, are, are trying to get the same point across. They're all trying to get a point across that Jesus is Lord. Jesus died on the cross and rose again, yes. Uh, but the way that they're talking and interacting through their Gospels, each one of them is, is a bit different in how they do so. And you'll see some variances there, but they all agree on this that Jesus was very much aware that his work, that is the salvation of souls, required his suffering and service, right? Jesus was not in some blind naivete where he thought he could change the world and then he ran into a Roman buzzsaw that killed him. That's not what happened at all. Every step of the way, Jesus was embraced in the suffering and the service through his earthly ministry. In fact, Jesus repeatedly himself told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then it was on the night that Jesus is betrayed. He gets arrested and he goes before the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is the council of elders and the chief priests, and, and they're the ones who make the ruling and the judgments for, for Jewish law. And when he is stand before this assembly, not once did he try to defend himself in an attempt to avoid the cross. He knew the cross was coming, and he didn't try to get out of it. And instead, when he spoke, he said what was true and what he knew would seal his fate to hang on that tree. Now, right before our scripture today, 
Peter was encouraging us with Jesus' vindication and his victory. I mean, if you were here on Mother's Day, it was quite the Mother's Day sermon that you heard. He was vindicated and he has victory through his suffering over death and sin. And, and it, was, it was encouraging, right? Peter's writing and he, and he just said, you have to have a defense for the hope that you have. And then he gives us that defense. He says, it's that Jesus is vindicated. It's that Jesus is victorious. But now he writes about Christ's suffering in a different way. And he calls us to embrace it. Not to just embrace it for Jesus, but to embrace it in our own lives. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Or in the King James, I, I think it's written better there when it says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. It's clear what Peter is calling for us here. It's to emulate Jesus. Peter has reached this point in his letter where it feels as if he, he's now rising from the table and has the attention of the room and he's standing up to proclaim that followers of Jesus be prepared to embrace not only submission to ungodly and unrighteous rulers and authorities over you, but also suffering as an aspect of your calling. Get yourselves ready for suffering. Now, this is quite the calling. When, when, we, when we stand back, and, and because maybe we've been too close to Jesus and to this movement for a while, this understanding of submission and suffering isn't new to us, but on the face, it, it, is, it is quite the calling. First, he calls us to submit to un, to ungodly rulers and unrighteous authorities and, and people over us, which, you know, that, that really hurts the pride and the ego. It says, I know they're wrong, I know what they're doing wrong, yet you're calling me because they're in power and authority over me to still submit to them. And that's the call. Puts our pride and our ego to the side. And the second part of this call that he has today, when he calls us to embrace the suffering in our lives, to embrace the suffering that comes with following Jesus, it forces us to deal with pain in our lives. Not to just try to avoid it or, or minimize it, but to embrace it and know that the suffering we face in this moment, the greatest suffering we face, pales in comparison with the tomorrow we have with Jesus. I mean, it's quite the calling that Peter has put on us what it looks like to be set apart. And, and, and so we know how to submit to these ungodly and unrighteous rulers. Peter, Peter worked through that exercise in this letter with us and showed us different scenarios in the ways we are to handle those matters. But now he calls us to suffer. I wonder how many of us skip these parts of what it's like to be following Jesus when we're telling our friends or giving our testimony to someone else. Generally, I imagine our, our, our testimonies go a bit like, you know, hey, you should follow Jesus because ever since I've followed Jesus, my life has been groovy. Or as, or as kids today would say, ever since I've been following Jesus, the vibes have been immaculate. 
right? Like, like life is all gravy. But while that is, that is true, but it's, it's true for a different reason, it also is hard. Following Jesus is hard. It's, it's arduous. It's not pain-free. It's not suffering-free. In fact, it's actually filled with pain and suffering. And it has a requirement of humility and submission through it all. But while there is suffering, it comes with grace. It comes with mercy. It comes with a comfort. It comes with a peace that passes the understanding because it's undergirded with the victory of Jesus. That, that there's this joy and this peace we have living in the midst of our intense suffering and pain, knowing that Jesus is king. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And so there's something about that hope that is sure and certain that allows us to endure and to persevere and to remain faithful to the God who's called us his own. And so, yes, since I began following Jesus, my life has been groovy. The vibes have been immaculate. But they've been groovy and the vibes have been immaculate because I am no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer under control of doing all of the worldly and the bad things that rebel against God in my life. But I am now free to worship him and glorify him. To not live for myself, but to live for him and his glory. That my life is no longer about me, but it's about something bigger than me. About the one who created me. That's what makes following Jesus such a great life. Because it's not groovy as the world would say. Because he calls us into submission. And into suffering. But how? How are we to live this life into suffering? How are we to suffer for his sake? And Peter would contest here in this letter that if we intend to embrace this mindset as, as our calling, as being set apart as Christians, if we're going to fully embrace the mindset of Christ, then there's three gospel commitments we have to make. That, it, that it's on us to make these commitments, these gospel commitments. And, there's, and there's, he doesn't ignore it. He says following Jesus comes with a cost, and there's two great personal costs that comes with making these gospel commitments in your life. And he leaves us with a word of encouragement here just in this section. The first gospel commitment he has is that, is that it begins with resolve. Right? That's not a word we use too much anymore, that, that we need to have resolve in our life, that we should be resolute. But Peter makes it clear that Embracing the mind of Christ, that having the mindset of Jesus requires us to be resolute about it, to take this serious, to say, this is how I am moving forward, and this is the lamp upon my path, the light upon my feet, and this is the way of Jesus and the way I am going forward. No longer will I look backwards and go sideways comes with a resolution. It's, it's essentially that Peter gets to this point in the letter and says, grow up. Grow up. Get the mind of Christ. You, you should be prepared for all of this. You're living in exile. You're sojourners. You're, you're 
citizenship is in heaven, you're living in this fallen world, be ready. Life isn't easy. Suffering's coming your way. Jesus says you will suffer and you will suffer not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And yet we're surprised every time it shows up on our doorstep. And Peter affirms, right? He, he affirms those who suffer for the gospel demonstrate that, that they're done with sin, right? This is what it means to be resolute, right here in this part. That if you're going to have the mindset of Christ, this is the, the commitment you have to make, that you're done with sin. It's not like, hey, you know what? I know I'm sinning in this part of my life, but I'm following Jesus now, so, you know, he's going to forgive this. I'm good. That's not resolute. That's not the resolve that he's calling for. It's, it's to be done with the sin completely, to go into that battle with the power of the Spirit, to put it to death and put it to death daily. It's not going to be easy. It's hard. It's arduous. You're going to suffer through it. You'll never be perfect at it. So why do it? Because Jesus stands victorious. Because he suffered on the cross. So you would never have to. The next gospel commitment that he calls us to make is to live for the will of God. In verse 2 here, it's written, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I mean, Peter's already written about this obedience and, this, and what it looks like to have godly pursuits in our life. In the first chapter... He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And in the next chapter, in chapter 2, he, he reminds us again. He says, keep your conduct honorable by doing good deeds. The way we are to live is not to be for ourselves, but for the will of God, right? The mindset of Christ is found there in the garden. Oh, Lord, please take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. It's the, it's the prayer we pray as Jesus taught us. Not my will be done, thy will be done. It comes with, if we're resolute about our commitment, this follows to be doing the will of God. And then the, the third gospel commitment, this third pursuit, is probably the hardest of the three. We can be resolved, we can be resolute about following Jesus and putting our sin to death. We can be uh, uh, committed to following God's will, but this, this third one gets really difficult. In that we are to leave human passions behind. See, Peter writes, the time that is past suffices. We don't talk like that anymore. Who talks like that? What is, what is Peter really saying here? That the time that is past suffices? I mean, that's someone grabbing your attention. That's, that's a, a, a dad of an adult child or a dad of a, a middle school child or a parent or a grandparent or somebody grabbing your attention and saying, enough already. Enough already. Put sin in your rearview mirror 
and go. Grow up. Life isn't this big party that you think it is. It's time to take this following Jesus thing seriously. You've been doing it part-time on Sundays. It's time for you to go full-time into following Jesus. Leave those human passions behind, but that's the hard one. Because we're still living in this world that's fallen. And we have friends still in it. Dutch philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he has a story about a duck. And, and, and he tells about these wild ducks that are flying north in springtime. Flying north over Europe in springtime, and, and it's time for rest, and they come down, and this duck lands at a barnyard that, that has tame ducks. And so there's food there, and he, he eats some of their corn, and well... Slowly, time turns into an hour, and then all the other wild ducks begin to continue to go north, and this duck is there for a day, and now a week, then a month, and then suddenly, the duck's been there all summer, just eating the food with all the tame ducks. And one autumn day, the, the ducks that flew north are now flying south. He hears them. He knows their voice. That's his friends and family, the ones he used to hang with all the time. And he looks up and he begins to fly with them. But now he's become soft and heavy from all the food. And he can't give a, get above the barn's rooftop. So he turns around. He says, oh well, my life is safe here. The food is good. And then every spring and every autumn, as the ducks fly north and again south, and he hears them squawking in the sky, this duck gets a little gleam in his eye as he remembers them. And then suddenly, one day, he doesn't hear them at all. Too often, we are satisfied with what the world has to offer us. And we have feasted on it for too long. It's made us soft and heavy. It's made it hard to fly where God has called us. So Peter wants our attention. Desperately. Do not miss this call on your life. Don't do it part-time. And don't just do it for a little while. This is a lifelong endeavor. It requires endurance and perseverance and faithfulness. Be done with lesser things. Be done with lesser things. With these new commitments, Peter is aware there's a cost that's coming your way. If you're resolute about following Jesus, you got serious about following Jesus, you're going to follow the will of God, and it's no longer this part-time thing you do on Sundays that's kind of cool, and I have this other group of friends I get to hang out with, and I get to sing some songs. 
when it becomes your life's endeavor, it becomes serious work for you, there's a cost that comes associated with it. And Peter points this out, that your friends and family will be surprised at you. Those that you have hung out with before, they will be surprised at you. Because now this Jesus thing has become serious. And so the way you're living has changed. The way you talk, the way you act, the things that are important has changed. So they come around, right? As all good friends do once you no longer hang out with them. Hey, come on, man. Come back out with us. Loosen up a little. I.e., join me in my sin. It's fun over here. When we say no, they're surprised. Come on, you used to do this all the time. What's changed? Begin telling them about Jesus. You begin telling them that all that's changed. You try and tell them that since following Jesus, your life's been groovy. They're like, that doesn't sound groovy at all, man. Right? So that second cost comes pretty quick. They'll harm you or do evil to you or revile you, slander you. Right? Peter writes it right there in verse 4. He says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So he encourages us. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, the thing is, if when we get serious about following Jesus and, and we no longer make it part-time hobby that we're kind of into and it becomes our life's endeavor, there's a cost. Friends and family and community around us, there's a cost because they notice that your life is different. If since you've been following Jesus, people don't notice that your life is different, I would wonder how seriously you've been following Jesus. Because it's noticeable. But because we're serious and resolute, we don't need to judge the world. It already stands condemned. For God has promised when Jesus comes again, he will make all things new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And we will live there forever with our Father who is our creator in heaven. So Peter's plea is here. Entrust yourself to God and let Jesus straighten it out. It's this call to submission and suffering that sets us apart. It sets us apart for Jesus. It sets us apart like Jesus. Amen. This morning, we are going to stand and sing. And I, as we stand and sing, I invite you to, to consider this argument Peter has made on what it takes to be committed to following Jesus and what it looks like in our lives. And so as we stand and sing the Lord's Prayer, remember the seriousness that comes with every step you take. Let us stand and sing.